If you have your Bible, I invite you to turn with me to Luke chapter 3. Luke chapter 3, and we will be beginning at verse 21. In one of her books, author Barbara Brown Taylor recounts a seminar that she was once at where the presenter talked about taking a group of students into the wilderness. The goal of these trips was that the students would be able to experience hiking and rafting and therefore the untamed holiness of the wilderness, of the wild. Brown said that a participant in the seminar raised his hand and asked whether there are predators in those places that the seminar leader would take the students, predators in those places who were above the food chain than us. The guide said, no, of course there weren't, because then they would be jeopardizing the life and safety of the students. The audience member replied, well, I wouldn't take students to those places either, but don't lull them into thinking they have, an, they have experienced true wilderness. It's only wilderness if there's something out there that can eat you. This morning we want to see how in some ways we all live in the wilderness today. But specifically we want to see how Jesus went into the wilderness. He went where the wild things were. He ventured out into the wilderness and there were not only wild animals physically lurking there, but there was also an ancient foe who first led the first man into bringing sin and death and pain into the world. And when Christ encountered that ancient foe, it was more than simply two people facing off. The battle was cosmic in nature, for the fate of the entire human race hung in the balance. Yet Jesus' confrontation with that old serpent resulted from the same reason that all of God's people are confronted by that serpent today. We are considered sons of the living God. How did Jesus triumph over that enemy? How can we triumph over that enemy today? This is what we want to look at as we look to Luke's gospel. As we continue making our way through this book that shows us that Jesus Christ is the Savior of the world. And we begin by reminding ourselves that Jesus is the very Son of God. Follow along as I begin reading at verse 21. Now when all the people were baptized, that is, they were coming out and being baptized by John as a sign of their repentance and faith. When all the people were baptized and when Jesus also had been baptized and was praying, the heavens opened. And the Holy Spirit descended on him in bodily form like a dove. And a voice came from heaven, you are my beloved son, with you I am well pleased. Jesus, when he began his ministry, was about 30 years of age, being the son as was supposed of Joseph, the son of Heli, the son of Mathot, the son of Levi, the son of Melchi, the son of Janai, the son of Joseph, the son of Matathias, the son of Amos, the son of Nahum, the son of Esli, the son of Nagai, the son of Maath, the son of Matathias, the son of Semein, the son of Joshech the son of Jodah, the son of Joanan, the son of Resha, the son of Zerubbabel, the son of Sheatiel, the son of Neri, the son of Melchi, the son of Adai, the son of Kazam, the son of Elam Adam, the son of Ur, the son of Joshua, the son of Eliezer, the son of Jorim, the son of Mathot, the son of Levi, the son of Simeon, the son of Judah, the son of Joseph, the son of Jonan, the son of Eliakim, the son of Maleah, the son of Minah, the son of Matathah, the son of Nathan, the son of David, the son of Jesse, the son of Obed, the son of Boaz, the son of Salah, the son of Nashon, the son of Ami-Nadab, the son of Admin, the son of Arni, the son of Hezron, the son of Perez, 
the son of Judah, the son of Jacob, the son of Isaac, the son of Abraham, the son of Terah, the son of Nahor, the son of Sarug, the son of Ru, the son of Peleg, the son of Eber, the son of Shelah, the son of Canaan, the son of Arphaxad, the son of Shem, the son of Noah, the son of Lamech, the son of Methuselah, the son of Enoch, the son of Jared, the son of Mahalalel, the son of Canaan, the son of Enos, the son of Seth, the son of Adam, the son of God. May God bless the reading of his word. These verses might seem like an unlikely place to begin thinking about fighting temptation and the devil himself in our life. And yet we experience temptation every day and often feeling as if we don't have victory. And yet it is actually in these words that victory begins to come on the horizon of our thoughts and our hearts. We often feel the drag of sin and seemingly have very little victory. And yet there is hope. There is hope to say no to sin and to live for God. Luke shows us that Christ is the perfect Savior for all people. And it begins with the identification that He is the Son of God. And it's from His work as the Son of God, His saving work, that we are assured today, not just of victory on the final day when Christ comes back for us, but more than that, we are assured of victory over sin now. Why? Three reasons. First, because Jesus stands in the place of humanity. Jesus stands in the place of humanity. He does this first because he stands as God's divine son. He stands as God's divine son. We saw this passage unfolded more last week when we considered the voice of God from heaven declaring, This is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. Jesus was more than just a man. He was and still is God in the flesh. And if you've been with us all these weeks, you will know that Luke has been hammering this point home to us. Even before Jesus was born, through the word of the prophets, Luke has been highlighting, has been showing us over and over and over again in these opening chapters that Jesus is human and Jesus is divine. The question is why? Why is he hammering this home to us again and again? Well, consider how difficult it would have been for those in Luke's day to get their mind around this idea. The God of the Greeks were nothing like Yahweh, the one true God. There was no other God who become man and die for sinners. And so many of us are accustomed by 2,000 years of gospel advance. We have been blessed to live in a country and a culture influenced heavily by Christianity. And maybe even have grown up in church that all of this reality about Christ has become second nature to us. It's old hat, it's stuff that we've known all of our life. But such was not the case in their day. And frankly, such is not the case increasingly for many born in our culture today. They have no idea who Jesus is except for the parodies and imitations seen in movies and in television. Therefore, we need to stop just for a minute and drink deep at the well of Christian theology. We need to find a renewed and a fresh sense of awe at the person and work of Christ. Not just because it will benefit our own soul, but it will help us to be more readily available, more readily with words and expressions and even affections in our own heart to lead others to drink at the well of the gospel of Christ. Jesus not only stands as God's divine son, he also stands as God's greater son. 
as God's greater son. Unlike Matthew, where his genealogy begins with Abraham and traces the line of descent through David to Jesus, Luke starts in the opposite direction. He starts with Joseph, Jesus' adoptive father, and he traces the line back to Adam himself, the very first man, therefore the son of God. The result is a longer and slightly different list of names. Why is that? Well, I think there are a couple of different ideas about um, about why the, there are differences between Matthew's genealogy and Luke's genealogy. And from what I've read and the arguments that I've studied, I think that Luke has two goals in mind that Matthew doesn't have, or didn't have, rather. First of all, the lists are not contradictory, but complementary. It's not as if uh, one person did their homework right and got the right list, and someone did their homework wrong and got the wrong list. No, uh, they, they go together well, in fact, because while Matthew is concerned, I think, to show Jesus to be the king of the Jews and the heir, not just to the promises of Abraham, but to the throne of David, Luke has a bigger idea to present. Luke wants to show Jesus coming as the second Adam. He wants to show Jesus to be the descendant of that first man and the one who succeeds where he failed. Therefore, he doesn't trace the line of regal descent from David to Joseph. Rather, he traces the physical line of descent. He shows us the actual line of parentage from Joseph back through Crete to the very beginning of creation to Adam himself. This is helpful to us for a number of reasons. First, it again makes the point that these Bible stories aren't made up. They aren't fairy tales. Years ago, one Bible translator in Papua New Guinea was beginning the task of translating the Bible into a language that had previously not had it before. And he was doing this not because the entire village of the people had come to faith in Christ, just the opposite. He was doing it on the front end to help evangelize that people. And he sat down with the New Testament, with the very first book, Matthew, and he looked down at chapter 1, the first 18 verses or so, and said, there's no way I'm starting with this. I'm not starting these guys with the genealogy. We're going to get bogged down. They're going to be like, this book is boring, and they're going to have nothing to do with it. So we're going to start in chapter 2 instead, as they begin translating in chapter 2. And they go through to the end of the gospel, and he says, we've got to go back, and we've got to finish up chapter 1 now. We've got to finish up the very beginning. And so it took them a while to figure out how to translate the word begat into their language. But once they did, they only got about six names in, and he noticed the translators, these, these individuals who, who had heard all of the gospel stories but had not yet confessed faith in Christ, didn't, had not yet said they believed, they were getting very excited. And he, so he said, what, what, what's going on? What, why are you guys so, so jittery all of a sudden? And they asked him, do, do you mean that these are real men? And he says, yeah, these are real men. And he says, this is what we do. He says, what do you mean? And the reality was that this particular people would, would cultivate and keep and would memorize these long lists of genealogies of their own parentage. And they went on to say, now we know these aren't just white man stories, and now we believe. And that night, probably one of the rare times of any evangelistic service went this way, those translators gathered the whole village together and said, listen to this, and read the genealogy of Matthew 1. In fact, the Cho tribe was excited that it became the instrumental text for the gospel advancing and for people becoming Christians in that culture. 
This is living history. These people existed. They had goals for their life. They had fears in their life. They had loved ones and relationships. They, they sweat when they got hot, and they stank even worse than we did because they didn't have deodorant. These were, these were all people who actually walked the surface of this earth. Christianity is rooted in history, not fiction. And in fact, in these verses, what we see is all of human history summed up to this point. Here is represented every generation and therefore every sin of humanity as well. Luke is pointing us back to the reality, reminding his readers of the biblical worldview. That says, from the first man, from God's first son, Adam, came the first sin and therefore all the sin in the world. Now we do have to stop and just, and just wonder, how is Adam's God's son? Well, in one sense, we can rightly say God has never had a son. If we consider sonship to come from the result of siring a son. In that sense, God, who does not have a body, has ever physically had a child, and yet... What he did here was make one from the dust of the ground, fashioning him into the image and likeness of himself. Biblically speaking, sonship with God is always about character, not about physicality. Therefore, Adam is truly the son of God because he was made in his image. He was made after his likeness. He was made to reflect God's own character. And yet, he failed to live as God's son standing in a garden of beauty and perfection, still brimming with the glow of God's creative work. Adam had everything he could possibly need and want and more. He had life with God himself. He had been given every plant and tree and fruit for food. He was given a wife to know and to love. He would literally walk with God in the garden in the cool of the day. Yet in the midst of that bliss came the devil himself in the form of a serpent. And there he led Adam and Eve to disbelieve God's character, to distrust God's word. Instead of a good God of grace and blessing, Adam was tempted to believe that he was stingy and untrustworthy. Adam was tempted and gave in. And through the simple act of taking the fruit of a tree, God said, was off limits. The one thing that he was denied in all of creation... He sinned and took the world with him. Sin came into the world and death through sin. And as Paul would later reflect then, all of us, all of us are in Adam and die. Some of you have put parents into the ground. Some of you have put children into the ground. Some of you have watched as loved ones grieved as they put their relatives in the ground. Do you know why? We put people in the ground or into the crematorium. It's because of Adam's first sin. Death and corruption came into God's once great created order. It is not the way things are meant to be. But now another son has come. Christ has come. He has come as God's greater son who perfectly reflects God's character so that instead of dying, all might live in him. And we see the evidence of this work to the rest of the gospel. But Jesus' success is especially seen in the the following verses of the next chapter where unlike the first Adam, Jesus, the second Adam, overcomes the temptations of the devil. And so here, secondly, we see this. Jesus stands in the face of temptation. 
Jesus stands in the face of temptation. He stands in the place of humanity, and he stands in the face of temptation. How is he tempted? Satan immediately jumps on what has just happened at Jesus' baptism. What has happened? God has announced, this is my son. And to emphasize that to his readers, this is why Luke inserts the genealogy here that starts with Jesus and his adoptive father Joseph and goes back to Adam, God's son. Luke is signaling, yeah, he's really God's son. And now Satan comes and says, oh yeah, you're God's son? Prove it. Prove that you are God's son. Follow along as I read chapter 4, beginning at verse 1. Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, returned from the Jordan at where he was being baptized. He returned from the Jordan and was led by the Spirit in the wilderness for 40 days, being tempted by the devil. And he ate nothing during those days. And when they were ended, he was hungry. The devil said to him, If you are the Son of God, command this stone to become bread. And Jesus answered him, It is written, Man shall not live by bread alone. And the devil took him up and showed him all the kingdoms of the world in a moment of time and said to him, To you I will give all this authority and their glory, for it has been delivered to me, and I give it to whom I will. If you then will worship me, it will all be yours. And Jesus answered him, It is written, You shall serve the Lord your God, and him only shall you serve. And he took him to Jerusalem and set him at the pinnacle of the temple and said to him, If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down from here. For it is written, He will command his angels concerning you to guard you. And on his hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against a stone. And Jesus answered him, It is said, You shall not put the Lord your God to the test. And when the devil had ended every temptation, he departed from him until an opportune time. Unlike the first Adam who stood in a beautiful garden with a full belly and a helper at his side, the second Adam stood alone in the wilderness with no food. And at every turn, unlike the first Adam, the second Adam, Jesus, stands in the face of temptation. He never yields. Here are three temptations, those specific to Jesus, that serve as representative common temptations to all of us, even ones that we face today. So how did Jesus have victory? In one sense, we can even ask, how did he have victory so that we can have victory? Jesus stands because of three things. First, he trusts in God's care. He trusts in God's care. Jesus hadn't hadn't eaten anything in 40 days, and it's then that the devil said to him, if you are the son of God, if you are really his son, then you don't need to be hungry. Just ask and turn these stones into bread. Jesus is being tempted to doubt God's goodness and provision in the midst of difficulty. The devil is implying that God had abandoned his son in this situation and was failing to care for him as he should. Now, on one level, aren't we easily tempted in the same way? Aren't we tempted to fail to trust God when things aren't going as well as we would like? It's easy to to, to love God and to worship Him and to trust Him when everything's fine. But when the wheels fall off, then where is your trust? Do you still think God is caring for you? We get an extra bill, and what do we do? We start hoarding money. We develop chronic pain or see a loved one dying. We begin to wonder, where is God? That's precisely where Israel failed. They were rescued from Egypt, taken to the Red Sea, brought to God's holy mountain to receive his law and his covenants. Yet they failed to trust him again and again and again every time life got the littlest bit rough. One person has said as soon as their bellies rumbled, their throats grumbled. And that's exactly the way it is. We're going to starve out here. That they just list, weeks before, they, they are begging, they are crying out, will anybody save us from slavery in Egypt? 
and they don't have meat. So they start, they start complaining and saying, you know, we should go back to Egypt. It was pretty good back there. Satan is tempting Jesus to do the same. He is tempting him to enjoy the privilege of being God's son without the path of suffering that is the defining mark of his ministry as the Messiah, a path that would lead him all the way to the cross. And how does Jesus respond? He quotes from Deuteronomy chapter 8. It is written, man shall not live by bread alone. He only quotes one verse, but what is the context? What does the whole passage say? If you go back to Deuteronomy 8, Moses says this to Israel, you shall remember the whole way. He, he is speaking now, looking back on the 40 years of their wilderness wanderings as they're getting ready to go into the promised land. And Moses says, you will remember the whole way that the Lord has led you these 40 years in the wilderness, that he might humble you, testing you to know what was in your heart, whether or not you would keep his commandments. And he humbled you, and he let you hunger, and fed you with manna, which you did not know, nor did your fathers know, that he might make you know that man does not live by bread alone, but man lives by every word that comes from the mouth of the Lord. Your clothing did not wear out on you, and your foot did not swell these forty years. Know then that in your heart, that as a man disciplines his son, the Lord your God disciplines you. You shall keep the commandments of the Lord your God by walking in his ways and by fearing him. By quoting this from this passage, Jesus is saying to Satan, don't you know that God loves all of his children? And because he loves them and cares for them, he lets them go through pain so that they will understand that he, that God himself is worth more than anything in this life? And that that is the most loving thing that God can do for someone is to teach them not to be an idolater, not to love something else, but to love him alone. Jesus is saying it doesn't matter if it's easy or not. It is right to obey God because he is God. But more than that, it is never an automatic sign of God failing to care for his people simply because you go through pain. In fact, it may be just the opposite. It may be God's way of cultivating your faith and taking you to new heights of intimacy with him. Second, Jesus stands because he desires God's glory. Jesus stands because he desires God's glory. Satan comes to Jesus again. Verse 5 says, The devil took him up and showed him all the kingdoms of the world in a moment of time and said to him, To you I will give all this authority and their glory, for it has been delivered to me, and I will give it to whom I will. If you then will worship me, it will all be yours. Well, this is nothing less than a temptation to break the first commandment, right? If Jesus will fall down and worship him, then the devil will give him authority over the nations. Thus, he says, in effect, worship me and you don't have to go to the cross. You know that the plan for the Messiah is to receive authority over all nations. But the way to do that, the way that has been predicted and prophesied is that you will be the suffering servant who becomes the authoritative son of Psalm 2. Suffering comes before glory, but if you just worship me, you don't have to have the suffering. You can just get the glory. The temptation then is to shortcut his ministry as the promised Messiah. To have all of the praise and the prestige as Lord of the nations without any of the agony or pain of the atonement. If he will simply bow down and worship the Father's rival. Martin Luther taught on the Ten Commandments, he said, You're only going to break commandments two through ten if you break first Commandment one, you shall have no other gods before me. This is precisely where all sin begins. It's the very thing that Israel 
failed at time and time again, like an unfaithful bride who keeps turning up in the beds of other men. So God calls Israel a spiritual adulteress who keeps going after other gods again and again and again, giving her worship to them. More fundamentally, this was the sin of Adam as well. In one short moment, surrounded by the evidence that God was worthy of his worship in all things, Adam, along with his wife, defied God, worshipped his own judgment rather than worshipping and trusting the one true God. And today, we are often more like the son of Adam than the son of God. Because we are not just tempted, but so very often do the same thing. Rather than go through difficult circumstances in life, whether big or small, whether huge insurmounting pain or inconvenience, we give in to idolatry. We have trouble at home. So we lie about a mistake that we made or neglect to tell our spouse where we've been. We fritter away our time with pointless drivel or worship sleep so much that we cut off time with God or his people in order to finish up our work or spend time in bed. We hate the thought of angry or unruly kids, so we spoil them. Rather than be happy with a lowered standard of living, we sacrifice our families or God's church to work, work, work. All these things and so many more are examples of the dethronement of God in our lives. Rather than letting him be king, rather than worshiping him more than anything else, we set our gaze far too low. Yet where Adam failed, where Israel failed, where we fail, this is the very place where Jesus doesn't fail. As God's true son, he succeeds. For Jesus knows, number one, that Satan can never really give all that he promises. In fact, Jesus can say that you will only gain misery while losing your soul if you give in to him. And so he says, you shall worship the Lord your God and serve him only as it is written. Jesus is telling us that God and God alone stands at the center of all things. Therefore, our lives should be centered around him. The first and most basic sin is not loving, serving, obeying, and worshiping God. It's not giving God the glory that he deserves. I'm not treasuring that above anything else. But Jesus desired the glory of God, and it was evident in his life. Finally, Jesus stands because he trusts in God's love. He trusts in God's love. Luke says the devil took him to Jerusalem and set him on the pinnacle of the temple and said to him, If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down from here. For it is written, he will command his angels concerning you to guard you. And on their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against a stone. Now Jesus has been quoting scripture in regards to the temptations that Satan has thrown at him. So Satan decides to quote some scripture himself. He quotes from Psalm 91, but he twists it to his own agenda. He is writing, he is quoting rather, from an Israelite who is rejoicing in the provision and protection that God gives to his people. And so he says, look, just jump. And make it, make it known that you are God's son. Why, why doubt God's goodness? Why doubt his love? If you throw yourself off of this temple pinnacle about 300 feet into the air, surely he's not going to let his Messiah die. He's not going to let you fall and break your neck. You still have to go to the cross and die. So just throw yourself off and prove to yourself and anyone around that you are truly the son of God. The question is whether or not Jesus will trust that God loves him or if he will feel, feel the need to prove it to put it to the test, to prove it to himself. It's a temptation to force God to act, to test him as it were. This is why Jesus answered him and said, you shall not put the Lord your God to the test. Jesus says it is wrong to go out of your way to put yourself into temptation. It's like testing God's love for you. Will he save you or will he won't? You can imagine the 
the man who has just recovered from 30 years of alcoholism, being sober, and telling God, I'm going to go into that bar to visit my friends and I expect you to keep me from taking a drink. That's not proving God's love for you. That's showing, frankly, your idiocy and your lack of wisdom in knowing how to deal with temptation and sin. The bigger question, though, is this. Are we actually seeking after God with faith in him? Or we just blindly throw ourselves off a cliff for no reason and say, save me, God. Are we reading his word, seeking to understand on his terms? Or are we twisting it to have an excuse to do whatever we want to do? Israel time and time again demanded a sign that God loved them. He tested the Lord their God, but Jesus doesn't. He doesn't need any miraculous sign as proof that God loves him. What about you? Do you need proof that God loves you in this life? particularly in the midst of pain. The reality is, Paul says, God has already put on display the final lasting proof that he loves you, an argument for God's love that you can never deny, that you can never argue with, and it's simply this. He gave us his son. He gave us his son. Therefore, how how can he not love us? How will he not give us anything else? This is Christ's victory in temptation, and it's a victory not just for him, but also for us. And so finally we see that Jesus stands in the gaze of the righteous. Jesus stands in the gaze of the righteous. Here we want to make the turn towards application. How does this passage help us in our battle against sin? What can we learn? What can we do this afternoon, perhaps in 10 minutes from now, perhaps three years from now, how is this passage going to help us learn how we are going to fight sin? First of all, we see here a Savior to be trusted. A Savior to be trusted. Hebrews 12 is a familiar text for many Christians. And there to believers facing temptation, the author says this, let us lay aside every weight, every sin that clings so closely, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. How? Looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Now why is this passage so helpful? In part because it points us back to the reality of the passage we've just seen. It points us back to these verses, namely that Christ is the victorious Savior. His victory is our victory. Because he succeeded as a Savior, he can save us from our failures. You see, the first step in any temptation is to doubt our identity. It's to doubt who we are. Adam was tempted to forget that he was a dependent creature, not an all-wise creator. Israel was tempted to believe that the God of their redemption would also be the God of their destruction, that he didn't care for them. Jesus was tempted to believe that he wasn't really the Son of God. And you will be tempted. You will be tempted to forget your identity as God's child, redeemed by an all-wise God. But the gospel anchors us in reality. We will be held fast in the storm of salvation, uh, temptation by secure lines of the reality of our sin and God's grace. Number one, the line is, we have failed in every way to honor God as his son. But Jesus has succeeded. By identifying with sinners at his baptism, he's beginning his long journey to the cross. He will go so far as to stand in their place and bear God's holy wrath for their sin. And it's this victory in the wilderness temptation that begins his active obedience to God, securing righteousness for sinners. 
Just as what makes Christ the perfect Savior for all men. He not only bears God's wrath, but he wins them a righteous standing before God. And so any fight against sin must begin here. Otherwise, we'll be tempted to fight in our own strength or think we're earning our salvation or that somehow we go it alone, mano a mano, with the devil. And that doesn't work. Instead, we first look to the Savior who has already won the battle. He's already won the battle. It's by grace that we have been saved through the work of Christ. This forgetting of our identity can be big and it can be subtle. One guy, one seminary professor, as he is writing, talking about traveling with his family through a blinding rainstorm, hoping to, to make progress on vacation. He, he cannot see a thing, and so uh, they, they finally have to get off, and they find a hotel, and he goes in and uh, leaves his family in the car, runs through the rain, and tries to see if they have an opening. And he says as he's sitting there, the, the, the girl was pleasant enough and begins chatting a conversation. He begins chatting the conversation, and he said uh, he felt like he was back in college or high school, just standing there talking about nothing, having a good time, meeting somebody new. And suddenly he heard this, this voice come from behind him. Dad! Dad, check this out! And his older son is jumping on the baggage cart flying across the entrance there. And he said what scared him was not the fact that his son might fall and break his neck. What scared him was that for just a moment, he completely forgot who he was. He forgot his responsibilities as husband and father. He forgot his responsibilities and, and, and the way in which he is meant to, 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 to hold himself, to think about people and relate with others. He said nothing was going to happen. He wasn't having impure thoughts. He said, but he was at the beginning stages because he had forgot who he was. And he said... When he realized what he had done, his blood ran cold. Friends, it happens with any sin, with any temptation. The first step is to forget. If we have faith in Christ, we are the children of God. Number one, that means no foe can ultimately stand against us. But, and therefore, we have nothing to fear. But number two, it means that we are called to reflect the glory of God's greater son, Christ and when it's when we for, begin to forget those things, that temptation begins to jump upon us. Secondly, Jesus is not just a savior to be trusted. He is an example to be followed. He is an example to be followed. How did Jesus face the enemy? Luke tells us it was by faith in God and the power of God's spirit and confidence in God's word. Pastor and theologian Russell Moore says this, just as our temptation is part of a larger story, so is our exit strategy from its power. The same spirit who led Jesus through the wilderness and empowered him to overcome the evil one now surges through all of us who are joined by faith to Jesus. We overcome temptation the same way he did, by trusting in our Father and hearing his voice. In part, that means the way that we fight against sin is by not just sitting around waiting for something to happen. We don't... We don't drive our cars, men, by deja vu and sit and read the marquee and, and, and assume that nothing's going to happen. We don't, we don't uh, pick up that book or, or, or interact with that, with that person and work in the same way. We don't just assume everything's going to be okay. We realize there is a war. There is a spiritual war. There is a conflict that is raging. That to the degree that we look like Christ in our life, our face is on a wanted poster in hell. 
Because Satan delights in doing nothing but deglorifying God by deglorifying the Son. It is, it is his one mission in life to trash Jesus in every way. Why? Because he holds the place that he himself wants. Satan in pride desired to be the one that was exalted above all things. And instead, Christ is in that place, rightfully so. And therefore, if you look like God's son, if you are seeking to achieve holiness by God's grace, if you are seeking to imitate your Savior and your King, then Satan is coming after you. And the reality is, you don't rely on yourself. You rely on God. You have an act of faith that doesn't result in spiritual laziness, but the diligent pursuit of God, the storing up of his word in your heart. Some of us can't even find Deuteronomy in the Bible, and yet it is this very book that Jesus relies on with, with as it were, bullets of defense, throwing them out, destroying like, like sinful skeet all of the temptations hurled at Christ. What do we have stored up, ready to, to throw out, to wield as a sword in defense against temptations? We have this promise from James, submit yourselves therefore to God, resist the devil and he will flee from you. Draw near to God and he will draw near to you. Do you notice that before we are able to resist the devil, we must submit to God? That after we fight him off and are weak and perhaps open to another level of temptation that Satan will bring against us, we are to draw near to God. In other words, it it, it is not just off, off fighting by ourselves. It is in the context of a cultivated, growing, vibrant, faithful relationship to God that spiritual victory is won. When Adam took that forbidden fruit by God and pierced its flesh with his teeth, Derek Kidner said, it was so simple an act, yet so hard it's undoing. God will taste poverty and death before take and eat become verbs of salvation. Today we will hear those verbs, take and eat, and we know they mean salvation for us. We will sit at this table and be reminded that the decisive battle has been won. That Christ is victorious for us. We will also remember that the war continues because Christ has not yet returned. The devil continues to rage against the sons of God. And therefore we must fight not in our own strength, but in the strength that Christ himself gives to us when we look to him in faith, rely on the power of his spirit, and trust in the promises of his word. Father, I pray that we would do that today and in the weeks to come. That we will be marked not by spiritual pride, but by humility as we seek to trust fully in you for our salvation. Not just at the end, but our salvation from every temptation our enemy will throw at us. Father, we remember that ultimately our victory comes from Christ's victory. That he is Lord over all things. He has defeated every temptation. He has died in our place and therefore we have life and forgiveness and salvation with you. Father, may all of our war against sin start in that truth that the gospel is real, that Jesus is Lord. Father, we pray these things in his name. Amen.